Would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Our Old Testament reading today comes from Isaiah, verses 1 through 10, chapter 54. Sing, barren woman, you who never bore a child. Burst into song, shout for joy, you who are never in labor. Because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent. Stretch your curtains wide. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords. Strengthen your stakes. For you will spread out to the right and to the left. Your descendants will dispossess nations and settle in the desolate cities. Do not be afraid. You will not be put to shame. Do not fear disgrace. You will not be humiliated. You will, not forget, you will forget the shame of your youth and remember no more the reproach of your widowhood. For your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. The Lord will call you back as if you were a wife deserted and distressed in spirit, a wife who married young, only to be rejected, says your God. For a brief moment, I abandon you, but with deep compassion, I will bring you back. In a surge of anger, I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. To me, this is like the days of Noah, when I swore that the waters of Noah would never again cover the earth. So now I have sworn not to be angry with you, never to rebuke you again. Though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken, nor my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. The grass withers and the flowers fall. And the New Testament reading comes from John 3, verses 16 through 21. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did, did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may, so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. The Gospel of our Lord. Will you pray with me, please? I take up the refrain or the plea of the psalmist who said, May the poor and needy praise you. Father, we come at varying levels of deficit bereftness, anxiousness, freneticness, exhaustion, and even, yes, excitement. But where we are depleted, where we are unsure, where we are confused and dismayed, we ask that you would act and arrange these words in such pleasant ways that they could be understood, that they would accommodate to our need, and that we would be able in our poverty, in our need, to say praise be 
to the Lord who has compassion on us. We're glad that you've promised never to be angry at us again, never to rebuke us that your anger has fallen on the babe who was born to die. We ask that you would dispel the clouds of gloom even now and bring us a warming cheer as we consider your love. In Jesus' name, now come be with us, Holy Spirit. Amen. I have been told that I should watch The Good Place. And so I tried. (laughs) I've tried twice. I haven't tried hard. Sometimes you have to be fresh to watch new things, and I'm not fresh these days. But I... In the first five minutes of this show that I've seen lots of commentary about and lots of rave reviews about, Kristen Bell is sitting across the desk with some sort of concierge from heaven named Ted Danson. I don't know what his name is in the show, but she discovers there in this room that she has, in fact, woken up dead. An accident has befallen her in a parking lot involving shopping carts and other embarrassments. She's stunned to find that she is dead, and so she asks the obvious question when she's coming to terms with this reality to this concierge of heaven, Ted Danson, with the silver hair and all. She says, so who was right? Who was right about all this, you know, the heaven and hell and all that stuff? Who was right? And Ted answers, well, everybody got it about 5% right. The Hindus got it about 5% right. It's a very egalitarian answer he gives. The, the Buddhists got it about 5% right. The Jews and the Muslims and the Christians, they all got it about 5% right. They made 5% good guesses on what it was going to be like. So, you know, bravo to them. It's a patronizing answer. But there was this kid, this stoner from the 70s, who was in Calgary in the 70s, and he was high on mushrooms, Doug Forsett. And his friend Randy asked him what he thought the afterlife would be like. And there he was, high on these psychedelic drugs, and he started guessing and he was 92% right. He's actually quite a big deal in these parts, Larry is, or Doug, I'm sorry, Doug Forsett. They have a picture of him on the wall, this stoner kid from the 70s who guessed the afterlife all right when all the religions were only able to come up with a measly 5%, a failing grade. I don't know how the rest of the show pans out. I, I don't care. I will watch it at some point, probably. But it was interesting to me because I think it gives us a flavor of something that's happening. There is this sense, this sense that some of the most important things about one's life are nothing more than a brand preference. There's nothing more than bare conjecture involved. 
What's better? What kind of shoe is better? Nike or New Balance or Under Armour? Well, people have different opinions about that. North Face or Patagonia? Well, afterlife, what we're here for, 5% maybe, if you're lucky. Each of the, each of the religions is... is blindfolded and touching an elephant and trying to describe some part of it. They're each getting an aspect. One of the things that's remarkable to me, and I think this is why it was hard for me to watch the beginning of that, because normally I can suspend my disbelief. I do that. I watch shows and stories and read books. I suspend my disbelief. But there's something about it that's an affront to Christ to me when I hear this kind of stuff. It makes me actually angry. Because I think... That life and death depends on this. It isn't cute. The 5% comment. And that one of the things that we'll see today as we're looking at this fourth Sunday in Advent where we've talked about Christ as this hope, as an anchor for the soul that we have to wrestle with in the dark. And then and Christ as our peace who has destroyed this dividing wall of hostility and brought this absence of war and this establishment of things being right even in the midst of great conflict this hope and this peace and then we've looked at him as our joy this new perspective that overrides all manner of circumstance well today today we talk about this Christ as love And one of the things that we first see when we hear Jesus talking to Nicodemus in this passage that you've heard lots of times before is that one of the things that he means to give to us is something more than bare conjecture. That Jesus is a love that can be counted on, not as bare conjecture, but as concrete certainty. You can believe or disbelieve it, but that's what he means to have happen. He says to Nicodemus, you fella... You're a leader in Israel, aren't you? And you don't understand the things? Yeah. My phone. You're a leader in Israel. A teacher. And you don't understand these things? I tell you the truth. We speak of what we know. And we testify to what we have seen. But still you people do not believe our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. One of the things that you must re-instruct yourself and that you can share with your friends when we come to this apparently humble position of no one can really know any of this stuff is that Jesus thought you could. That his depiction of love, that God looked into this world and said, as love often does, I'm not okay with this. You know that one of the ways you can characterize love in your life is the things that you worry about the most. If you have children right now who are Doing things, being things, pursuing things that you don't approve of. It's not okay with you. Even if you don't say anything about it, you're unwell. 
The unwellness is like a virus in you. You can't be okay until you know that they are. Your love makes you worry for them. Your love makes you want to intervene. Your love makes you want to act. And Jesus has the audacity to say, this isn't some game. This isn't some philosophical speculation. This is God in his heavens from another realm that's real but unseen, who has looked down on his creation, on what was going awry, on what was being ruined and what was being spoiled like a bit of milk left out, and said, this is not okay with me. And so he came from the heavens and he put on our skin. He took on our limitations. He endured our lot. And he says to Nicodemus, nobody has ever been into heaven except the son of man who came from heaven. And so when I tell you things, they're authoritative things. You can reject them, but you mustn't come to the erroneous conclusion that this is mere conjecture. Know that when you resist what I'm telling you, I think you're resisting what's ultimately true. Well, that's helpful in, a, in an apologetic sense when you're talking to your friends, but what about when you're talking to your own heart? He wants you to have something that you can handle with concrete certainty. And so he says, I've come to give you heaven's vantage point. It's very easy for us when we think about God, when we think about life, to think of things from our point of view. Empathy is all the rage these days, and for good reason. Political correctness itself, which is ballyhooed in our parts, has at its goal, I think, not just totalitarian control, but it has as its goal thoughtfulness towards other people. It has as its goal taking up the perspective of the other person. But one of the things that the scriptures want to give to us, one of the things that Jesus is always giving to us, is saying, if you want to take the perspective of another, take the perspective of God. He's giving it to you. He's showing it to you in a way that you wouldn't have guessed and you can't figure out on your own. You have to believe it or disbelieve it. You have to accept it or you have to reject it. And I'm giving it to you to be counted on, not as bare conjecture, but as concrete certainty. And he can say it as stark as this. For just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. This doesn't sound like the speech of someone who's playing around. It's a love that can be counted on, not as bare conjecture, but as concrete certainty. And it's a love, like all our best loves, that anticipates what we need before we know we need it. You know, you sometimes, in your best moments of receiving a gift, and your best moments of giving a gift, 
will anticipate what somebody in your life needs or someone will have anticipated what you need so that when you get the gift, you think, oh, great, great. And you don't even realize at the moment what a phenomenal gift it is until later when you can use it. And you think, wow, how thoughtful they were. What love they must have had. What imagination they must have concocted. How much they must have thought of me. Last year, I think it was, my wife bought me something remarkably unique. And I thought, huh, this is weird. Why would you do this? She bought me a coat. Like, why would someone wear a coat? I thought. It's not something I would ever bought for myself. I wouldn't have thought, I need a coat. Who needs a coat? It's Chattanooga. But she got me a coat. And I look good in it, too, I just want to say. I don't look good in anything. You know that. And so, but you know what happened? One day, I, I wasn't immediately totally excited about it. But, but, but I, one day, I, it was, you know, it was cold outside, I guess. And I wore it. And I thought, hey, standing out for a six-hour baseball game when it's negative 42 degrees, and that's not even extra innings, this coat is a really wonderful thing. It makes it comfortable out here. I never would have guessed. I would never bought myself a coat. I wouldn't have thought of it. But she thought, hey, I could knock the chill off of this imbecile man by giving him something warm that he wouldn't have thought to get for himself. And one of the things that Jesus means to say to us that God apparently has been thinking of for a very very long time. As he looks over, as he looks down, as he peers into the heart of things and says, I'm not okay with this arrangement. I'm not okay with this spoiling and this ruination. I'm not okay with the way people treat each other. I'm not okay with the allergies that people continually depict towards me that makes them run away from their healing. So I'll give them what they don't know they need. I'll give them a way out of condemnation. I'll give them a way out of the poisonous inner dialogue and the poisonous stance that keeps them at odds with the one who will give them hope and peace and joy and love and life that dominates death. And so he gives his son. And Jesus, not bare conjecture, but concrete certainty and a love that has anticipated what we need before we know we need it says that just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the desert and he's referring to numbers 21 where the Israelites have complained and they've grumbled and they said we had golden corral buffet every day in Egypt and we ain't got nothing to eat here Our Nalgene bottles are empty. We got no protein bars, nothing. And they complain against God and they complain against Moses and he sends snakes. Surus. And some of them die. And they're poisoned by these bites and they call out to God and Moses and they say, Ah, we're poisoned. We shouldn't have complained. We're sorry. And God gives a provision for them as they smart and writhe from their own self-inflicted wounds. Hold up this golden serpent 
and everyone who looks at it will be healed. And Jesus says the same thing about himself because he doesn't remain the eight pounds, six ounce diaper donned baby savior that Ricky Bobby prays to. But he grows up to be one who, if he should appear in this room, we would all instinctually fall to our faces and has said, here's what I want you to have. I want the condemnation that keeps you cowering that keeps you caged up. I want it lifted off. I want you to have a way out of the poisonous way of thinking about yourself and others and me. And here's how. Not by anything that you have to come up with. You just have to stop looking down and start looking out. Instead of looking at a serpent, you look at the Son of Man, this concrete reality who has come into the world in our skin and has said, if you look to me, you will be healed. For this, the Son of Man came into the world not to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. You've seen the placards at the games and the NFL. God loves the world. What is God's position towards the world? Favor. But he's not happy with what's happening with it. And so he sends a concrete reality to address a need it doesn't know it has to lift off the condemnation so it doesn't live in dread, to lift off the condemnation of death, the condemnation of judgment to come for how it knows it's failed. How do we handle condemnation now? I feel like a broken record, a one-trick pony, but I've been saying of late because I think it's true in our times I think the way people handle their inner condemnation, their complicitness, their sense of responsibility and guilt and all the ills of the world, they handle it because there is no one to remove the condemnation by finding someone who's worse than they are and screaming and pointing and shouting and shaming. Because if we can find an enemy and all you have to do is watch the right news channel and they'll tell you which enemy is the right one, You find the right enemy, you point at them, and you hope to get some kind of relief. I'm not as bad as them. I hate the right things. They hate the wrong things. I love the right things. They love the wrong things. They're all messed up. I'm much better than I thought. But for some reason, it doesn't seem to be making us very peaceful or harmonious or kind or gentle or good. And Jesus says, here's what you need you don't know you need. You need your condemnation lopped off. You need this cell shattered so that you can walk out embraced, accepted. And it doesn't have anything to do with anything you're doing. It's something you wrap around yourself like a coat in the winter that your wife gives you because you don't know any better. It's an acceptance that takes the chill of condemnation away. And he wants you to know it as a certainty. So here's what I would say to you today. If you want to be condemned, stay away from Christ. You don't want to go near Christ unless you want to be accepted by God, unless you want eternal life. If you want to stay away from Christ, be condemned. 
Because that's what will happen. That's the default state. That's what Jesus said, who comes from heaven, who gives us heaven's vantage point. He says, if you don't believe in the Son of Man, you're condemned already. It's not that you reject him and then you're condemned. We're all condemned apart from him. There used to be a show called the Super Nanny. Do you know this show? It showed people how to parent. And the only people that know how to parent are British ladies. Jojo. And Jojo would come into households where there was a great deal of chaos and confusion and where kids were running the house and they were running the roost and making everybody crazy and life was miserable. But now we have this sensible British woman who comes in and one of the things that she would do is that she would video the parents parenting. It's a really joyful thing to think about if you know yourself at all. Now, we video ourselves all the time, but only in a curated way. And if it's, in, if it's authentic, it's curated authenticity, right? We control the things we want people to see out in the world. But what if someone was just watching you and videotaping you at your house, talking to your kids, talking to your spouse, and then you had the great privilege of someone showing you the video? And this is what would happen on the show for God and everybody in America who's watching Super Nanny. And these people, this dad, would look at himself. This mom would see herself. And there was no hiding. And she would go, oh my gosh, I'm like that? And the dad would be introduced to himself in a way that was startling. You mean that's how I look? That's how they perceive me? That's what they're getting from me? I didn't realize. I thought I only yelled six times a day, not 60. We're people who, when you start to see yourself, you realize there's plenty to condemn there. And one of the things you can assure yourself about that is no bare conjecture but concrete certainty is that Christ has made a provision for you that says, don't look down, don't look in, look out to him who came not to condemn you. He came to take the condemnation away so that you could be free, so that you could have life and life eternal. So it's a love that can be counted on as not bare conjecture, but concrete certainty. It's a love that has anticipated your need in ways that you couldn't of yourself and has wrapped you with acceptance instead of condemnation like a warm coat in the winter. And it's a love meant to matter for more than a few moments. Jesus uses words like, whoever believes in me will have Eternal life. Life that goes on. Life of the ages to come that starts in this age. In other places, he describes eternal life as knowing God. Not some conjecture, not some guess, but the possibility of actually interacting with, being guided by, being connected to, being soothed and accompanied by God himself. 
And when he tells Nicodemus that to see this reality, to know this eternal life, you must believe in the Son and you must, he says, be born again. And years ago, I came up with a definition for being born again. It's when you have mattered to God and he acts on you in such a way that he starts to matter back to you. It's when God wants you in such a way that he acts in overture In circumstance, he gets your attention. He pricks at your heart. He knocks on the door. He taps on your shoulder. And he wants you. And you find yourself wanting to say yes, even if you don't know how. You find yourself wanting to come near, even if you're scared. You find yourself saying, I can't leave this alone because he won't leave you alone. That's what happens when you're born again. It's not a decision that you make. It's a response to his concrete love, to his love that has anticipated your need and wants to take you out of condemnation and set you free. There's a show called Buster Scruggs that the Cohen brothers have put out. Some of you may have seen it. And Buster Scruggs is this outlaw who wears all white and he's riding on his horse Dan in the beginning of this story. Singing as he plays his guitar with his pleasing baritone, as he says. And he stops and he says to the camera, maybe some of y'all heard of me. I'm Buster Scruggs, known to some as the San Saba Songbird. I got other handles, nicknames, appellations, and cognomens. But this in here, and he holds up a poster, a wanted poster that says, Wanted, Buster Scruggs, misanthrope. A misanthrope is somebody who hates people. He don't like his fellows. He says, but this one here, I don't even consider myself halfway earned. Misanthrope? I don't hate my fellow man. Even when he is tiresome and surly and he tries to cheat at poker. I figure that's just the human material. And him who finds in it calls for anger and dismay is just a fool for expecting better. Ain't that right, Dan? He says to his horse. I ain't no misanthrope. I don't hate my fellow man even when he is tiresome and surly and he tries to cheat at poker. I figure that's just the human material. And him who finds in it calls for anger and dismay is a fool for expecting better. We get accustomed to people being tiresome and surly and trying to cheat at poker. We don't always get accustomed to just assuming it's the human material, but we do. That's why... The young are way more idealistic and why the older say, shut up. Because they've seen people be disappointing. They've seen their dreams diminish. They've seen hurts that happen. They know this is just how it is. It doesn't matter how you want it to be. It's just the human material. But God, like Buster Scruggs, ain't no misanthrope. 
And he don't hate his fellow man. And he don't hate his creation. And he will not abandon it to decay. And so he has given us this concrete certainty and anticipated our need. And he has said to us, for any who listen here this morning, even though you're tiresome and surly, and even though you've tried to cheat at poker or maybe on your taxes, maybe you lie. Maybe you're constantly not able to live up to what you thought you should. Maybe you failed in ways that you determined you never would. Maybe you find yourself daily hearing these voices that make you angry at other people, that make you assume the worst about them, these wounds that don't seem to be able to do anything but fester. And he says, you matter to me, and I've promised not to be angry at you. And this, to me, is like the days of Noah, when I pledged, after cleansing the earth, with judging waters that I would never depart from the regularity of the seasons. I would never kill the earth again with a flood. My everlasting love will not be taken from you. You matter to me. Now let me matter back. The one you may look to and not be condemned. Maddie Feltner in the Wendell Berry story has said about this in his relation to Margaret Finley that Margaret, when he was little, may might as well have been another boy to him, too little to be of interest. Or maybe even a girl, though it hardly mattered. He didn't pay her no mind. She lived down the street. He was a little boy doing little boy things. He wasn't concerned about a little girl. She held no interest in him. She did not matter to him. But because of a different instinct later, she would begin to matter to him a great deal in a dozen years. And after that, she would matter to him all his life. Something happened to Maddie. It's happened to a lot of people in this room. He couldn't have given one second's thought to some little girl down the street. She didn't matter one iota. And then 12 years later, by some different instinct, something happened to him. And suddenly she was an object of his curiosity. She wanted to be, in his heart, an object of his study, an object of his affection. She began to matter to him. And then after that, when they married, she mattered to him the rest of his life. And the God who gives life to the dead, who wants you to have a concrete certainty to instruct your own heart about and to instruct the world about, has anticipated your need, has wrapped you in acceptance and not condemnation, has come that the world might not be condemned but saved. And he has said, You matter, and I mean for you to matter for the rest, not just of your life, but forever. So when you find yourself thinking, Jesus doesn't matter to me, I'm condemned, or I can't live up to this, I don't want to do this anymore, it doesn't make sense to me anymore, I've gone too far, I can't be what he wants, know that that is not God telling you those things. 
Because he's saying, I want you to matter. I want to matter to you because you matter to me. I do not condemn you. So if you want to be released from condemnation, you come to me. You don't stay away from me. You draw near to me. You don't stay away. On Thanksgiving holiday, Kathy Youngblood found herself at 10 o'clock on a Wednesday night sitting in an overcrowded theater that was way too loud and way too close to the screen watching a movie about boxing. Just like she dreamed when she was a 15-year-old girl. Oh, I can't wait to be a mom one day and, and to go to boxing movies. I know she used to dream about that. I think about all the things that she does that she could never have imagined. And I was texting with Thomas over here, and I wrote, Kathy Youngblood demonstrates her love for our boys in this. That she goes to Creed two with them. And doesn't say a word about it. She doesn't voice her displeasure. She just wants to be with them. So she'll step into the mess. She is not, I might tell you, interested in boxing movies. I've never heard her say, hey, you want to go watch a boxing movie? Hey, can we watch an MMA fight? She's never said that. She's somehow opposed to violence. And yet, I see her over and over again, as you have seen in your lives, doing things for these boys and for me who matter to her so that it doesn't matter anymore what she's giving up or what it costs. She just wants to be with them. And it's a demonstration of a love that's concrete and real and reliable and addresses a need that we have and says to us we matter and meant to matter for a very long time. This Christmas, as we sing the songs, as you hopefully participate in some merrymaking, I hope you will when the voices of condemnation come, when the voices of dread try to settle in like a fog, that you will call to mind that Christ came not to condemn you, or the world, but to save it because it matters, because you matter and are meant to matter to him for a very long time. If you believe that, you'll keep going to him for a very happy long time. Amen.